This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Sweet Tarts dared to combine sweet and tart. But we didn't stop there. We combined soft and bouncy to bring you new Sweet Tarts Gummies Fruity Splits, a uniquely delicious dual-sided gummy with one side that's sweet and one side that's tart, but entirely smooth and squishy. Mmm, a powerfully perfect combo. Sweet Tarts, dare to combine. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Olive Podcast. I'm Janine, Olive's Deputy Editor and Podcast Host, and each episode I'll be catching up with chefs, cookery writers and characters from the food scene in Britain and beyond. Join us each week to expand your food knowledge as our guests share 10 things we need to know about their specialist subject. And do listen out for our effortless bonus episodes where they also reveal their top cooking cheats, hacks and shortcuts. I'm delighted to welcome Ed Kimber back to the podcast. Ed is a baker, food writer and author of six cookery books with his latest small batch bakes out this month. Ed's a regular contributor to Olive Magazine and you'll find loads of his brilliant recipes on olivemagazine.com and he's an absolute expert on the subject we're talking about today, patisserie. Welcome Ed, how thank are you? Thank you very much, I'm good, thank you. Now you wrote a whole book on patisserie, didn't you, called did. Patisserie Made Easy. Can you make it easy? <laughs> so uh, yeah, Patisserie Made Simple came out ooh, seven, six, seven years ago Yeah, and I had been asked by my publisher many times to write books about making baking simpler yeah. or easier. And what I didn't want to do was write anything that was either dumbed down or patronizing to the reader. Um, but patisserie felt like an area where I could actually make something simpler and it be of use and actually beneficial to the baker at home. Mm. Because... Patisserie traditionally can have many, many elements, be very technical and be quite long-winded. And so the idea of the book was to take patisserie and simplify its elements. I wasn't dumbing down techniques. I was more stripping out excess things to make it more approachable. So, you know, my, say, milfoy was like two elements rather than four or... You know, my um, gatto, my chocolate gatto was a very simple chocolate mousse laid with a cake rather than 17 different elements and layers. It was it, it was kind of more 
simplifying the style rather than dumbing yeah, down. So making it more approachable. Yeah. yeah. And you're going to talk us through um, 10 sort of different things about patisserie, mm-hmm. in particular French patisserie. Um, we're starting with a, a classic of French patisserie, which is the eclair. Yes. And the classic versus the modern. Tell us about that. So eclairs are kind of one of the cornerstone pastries in French baking, um, made with stew pastry. So it's one of the different types of pastry. Mm. Um, and it's it's very indicative of kind of how French baking has moved in the last, say, 25 years. Because eclairs traditionally would have had the simplest of flavors. It would have been, you know, a coffee eclair, yeah. a chocolate eclair. So like a, a single, single flavor. Yeah, and nothing adventurous really beyond those classics. Mm. And then over the years, you know, people have started using eclairs as a vessel for more imaginative and more interesting and dynamic uh, flavors, but also look like they, the style of an eclair has gone from, you know, slightly rustic to perfectly round cylinders. And, um, you know, pastry chefs now when they're baking eclairs will dust the unbaked uh, shoe pastry with things like uh, powdered cocoa butter or all different things or spray them with vegetable oil wow. to make them bake perfectly round. Yeah. Um, and now the flavorings are much more like many other types of patisserie where there's multiple elements in there, there's multiple mm. flavors. Um, I think one of the people really responsible for that is um, the chef behind Eclair de Genie who basically was um he was the pastry chef at a department store in france in in paris who every year would have this eclair collection and every year they would have these kind of really beautiful decorated eclairs and then he left and set up a business called eclair de genie and they have so many shops now really and they just make really colorful and vibrant and beautiful eclairs in like the most elaborate looks and flavorings. And he really pushed that forward to the point where eclairs have become this much more fancy thing, whereas before they might have been more of a workhorse. They're still still good to eat though. It's not stylish. I mean, they still taste good. Yeah, there definitely is a lot of, you know, I'm sure there's some places that are style of a substance, like anything that becomes kind of decorative like that. Mm. But he, um, yeah, his pictures are... I haven't had them in a long time from him, um, but they always were really beautiful and they were delicious. They were expensive, but they were really good. (laughs) Um, The next one, again, features shoe pastry. I mean, it seems to be a cornerstone of patisserie. Yeah, it's one of the classics, yeah. Uh, Is the Gatto Saint-Honoré. Saint-Honoré. Tell us about that. So, um... Saint Honoré is the patron saint of pastry chefs. <laughs> I love the fact that they've got a pastry, yeah. <laughs> patron saint. But there's also a street. So there is a um, Rue de Saint Honoré oh, right. in Paris. Yeah. And I it, I never know if it's quite true, but the story goes that it was invented on the street. I'm not sure how <laughs> true it is, but that is the story. There seems to be a lot of kind of apocryphal yeah. stories when it comes to French baking and, and its origins. Um, but the Saint Honoré is... Um, in, in a similar way to the eclair, it's gone through an evolution. So mm. the classic is a base of puff pastry, and then you pipe onto it rings of shoe pastry. They get baked off together. Oh, wow, they got baked together. Didn't yeah, they get baked that. together. And then um, you also bake off a number of shoe buns. And then the shoe buns get filled with pastry cream, 
and then dipped into caramel, almost like you're making a croquembouche, so yeah. the caramel goes hard. And they get um, placed around the outside of the disc of pastry. And then the inside gets filled with pastry cream, whipped cream, and it's very, very classic. Yeah. Um, but then over the years, it has become... Uh, a thing that people will play with. So the form of it has changed slightly. You get these really beautiful individual ones that are more tall and with colourful uh, decoration and flavourings. Yeah. Um, Claire de Mon from um, Gatua de Pan. She makes really beautiful versions of the Gatua Saint Honoré yeah. with um, really beautiful fruit flavours and in a form that isn't really similar to the classic at all, but it does include the basics of puff pastry and yeah. shoe pastry. Um, but it is a constant. It's one of those dishes that is just, everybody has a version, everybody makes something um, inspired by yeah. it at least, and it is a delicious classic. And the next one has got an interesting story to it, apparently named after a cycle race. <laughs> Paris Brest. The Paris Brest right? is a pastry inspired by the Paris to Brest cycling race. It used to be part of the professional cycling circuit. It doesn't exist as a professional race anymore, but I believe there might still be an amateur race that does that route. But it was invented by a baker on the route who wanted to commemorate oh. the race which is why it's a, uh, a ring, because yeah. it's meant to look like a bike tyre. Um, it's probably my favourite of the classic French bakeries uh, pastries because it's shoe pastry, yeah. which I think is a very approachable pastry. You don't need to have cold hands. You know, it's, it's twice cooked. It's cooked in a pan. Yeah. Then it's baked in the oven. Um, and there is quite often a rustic look to it anyway, so yeah. perfection isn't necessarily needed. Um, but once you have piped and baked this ring um, you then split it in half and then it gets filled with a um, type of pastry cream called creme mousseline mm. which is a mixture of um, softened butter beaten into pastry cream to create this almost buttercream like wow. texture but it's flavoured with praline so praline paste so traditionally it's um, flaked almonds on the outside of the pastry and then a hazelnut um, praline uh, through the mousseline and it's incredibly rich, the traditional version, because it's a ton of butter, lots of praline paste, but it has that amazing kind of nutty flavor mm. from the praline that I just love. Um, and you will find very, very classic versions of that all over the place. Many, many pastry shops still sell a very classic version of it. They might make a big one or an individual one, but it will still be classic. One of the main additions people have made to the classic is once you've piped the creme mousseline into the pastry they then often inject liquid praline paste into that so that when you cut through you oh, get wow. this liquid praline really coming right. out of the mousseline um but then there are obviously like everything um has been reinvented yeah but the classic is for me one of the best it's actually one of my favorite desserts to make you have actually got a recipe on olivemagazine.com for chocolate and hazelnut Paris breast with a Nutella mousseline. Yes, I do. <laughs> I'm try, trying to think back to when we made that, but yes, um, that will be a fairly classic uh, filling, replacing the praline paste, which can yeah. be really expensive to buy yeah. with Nutella. I know Obviously, it's you because you got Nutella in it and you love Nutella, don't you? <laughs> well, it's interesting because <laughs> Nutella is, I actually often use other brands because other brands make a much better version. Yeah. 
Um, if you've ever had Islands Chocolate, which is a London okay, chocolate maker, nice. they make like the a hazelnut version. chocolate spread. Yeah, it's so much better because yeah. it's got way more hazelnut to it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, traditionally Paris doesn't have chocolate in it, but yeah. praline paste is incredibly expensive to buy. Yeah, gotcha. You can make it quite easily, but it's incredibly expensive to buy. So yeah. something like a chocolate hazelnut spread helps for yeah, sure. Fantastic. Um, and for your next point about patisserie you say the croissant isn't french i mean controversial question mark there was a question mark oh, there's a there. question mark there. the croissant isn't french <laughs> so it's one of the things that i find a fascinating but also continually um interesting to kind of look into is the way food travels and changes mm. and i think we can look at so many different examples about how the origin of a dish can be tracked to another country. And yeah. that dish might be seen as something very particular to a country. So you, know, you think about fish and chips, and we think about it being such a British thing, but yeah. it wasn't. It was brought over by Jewish immigrants. Yeah. Um, and the croissant is not dissimilar. It was brought over from um, Vienna originally as something called um, Kipferl. And... Um, it's not the same. Yeah. It's not exactly the same as a um, croissant, but it does um, have a connection. Mm. And if you look at many uh, French pastries, they come from places like Italy or Poland, and then they get adapted and become something really well-known. You're going to t tell us about Danish. The origin of the word Danish basically is because of Vienna and Viennese bakers. So... Whereas um, the croissant comes from Viennese bakers, the name Danish is down to the fact that uh, there was a strike in um, Denmark and bakers went on a strike. And so to make pastries, Viennese bakers came in. They didn't recognize Danish traditions or Danish recipes. So they started making something that they were used to, okay. which was a multi-layered pastry. Yeah. But then when the strike ended, there became a real desire for these pastries. So they kept making them, which is where <laughs> the name Danish comes from. Um, but it's also where the word Vennoiserie comes from. Because Vennoiserie, if you look at how it's spelled, is very similar to Vienna. Vienna yeah, and so then kind of that culture of baking and that style of baking was given the name Vennoiserie. Yeah. Because it kind of has its origins in Viennese and Vienna, uh, Viennese bakers and in Vienna. Let's talk about Vennoiserie then. What, what what exactly is it? It's hard to define. I think specifically, I think of Vennoiserie as uh, enriched or laminated. Mm. So, laminated pastries would be things like croissant dough. You could even maybe count puff pastries there, but technically, it's not yeasted, so it wouldn't be Vennoiserie. Um, but Vennoiserie to me, encompasses all of those pastries you would get at breakfast. Okay. Rich pastries like brioche, yeah. um, brioche is a vennoiserie, um, you know, croissants are, um, all that style fits into that category. Um, but I think really it translates to enriched, yeasted pastry. Yeah. So things that are either laminated like a croissant or enriched like a brioche dough. Oh, I see. So it's either got the yeast in it. I think it has to be yeasted. Yeah. And I think it would be then either in a laminated style. So it's not bread, Benoiserie, yeah. but it would be things like brioche because it's kind of like gap between bread and cake. Uh, I think it kind of is that middle ground between 
patisserie and boulangerie kind yeah. of sits in there. That's why some patisseries make venoiserie and some boulangeries bolognese. Well, some boulangeries will make it because it's yeah, like a it breakfast item their, and it fits yeah, into yeah. their thing. Amazing. And for your next point, you were going to tell us something about the fascinating history of the rum barber. <laughs> it's, again, it's very similar in that its origins are not French, but it was then adapted and became incredibly French. So yeah. um, it's from uh, a pastry chef called Nicolas Storer, who was Marie Antoinette's um, pastry chef. And the shop that he founded, Storer, uh, is still standing, one of the oldest, uh, is the oldest pastry shop in Paris. And Baba, as an idea, comes from, well, kind of from the Alsace region. Okay. Um, but basically the idea was to um, soak Kugelhof in alcohol, as a, almost as a way of preserving it. What's Kugelhof? Kugelhof is the kind of rich yeasted cake with oh, yeah. um, dried fruit yeah. in it. And it's kind of in like a bunt shape, like yeah. a, a ring shape. And that was brought in from Poland originally, that kind of um, baba. And then when it came to France and to Nicolas Stora, who I think is Polish from memory, okay. um, obviously not alive now because I think he opened his shop in like 1730, so <laughs> definitely not alive. But um, he was the person who started adding... Um, aromatized wine, and oh. then rum. So if you actually go to Stora, they sell two versions of the bar bar. Yeah. One which is rum, which is what most people will use these days. And then the other one, which is the more traditional or more um, historically traditional mm. um, aromatized wine. So something like a port or a sherry or one of those kind of styles of... Um, you know, wine. And is the base of the rum barbar, is that is that a kind of um yeasted? Yeah, it is a yeasted. So it's um similar to a brioche, which is why it's closely related to Kugelhof, because Kugelhof mm. is very similar to brioche dough. Um but it generally has uh more enrichment in it. So yeah. when you work with a rum barbar, it's not shaped by hand, it's piped. Because oh. it's wet almost, yeah, and that's why it's also baked in sh inside molds because yeah. it can't hold its own shape. shape yeah. well, so whereas you could make a, a brioche bun, mm. you couldn't make a barba bun because it would just would not hold its shape. Yeah. It would kind of flatten out. It's they've, very very wet. They've become so trendy, haven't they? We've literally just had one in in Olive in our uh, our Cravens page, which is talking about trends mm. and. Um, we actually had a, a limoncello soaked one. Yeah, I think so it's, it's one that you can easily adapt it. Yeah. You, know, you can add things to the dough. You can change what it's soaked in, served alongside. It's. I think it's a very classic one for restaurants to play with because mm. it is quite easy, I think, to make. I don't think it's that complicated to make, yeah. especially because... In a restaurant environment, you're going to be using a mixer. And with a mixer, it's not difficult to make. Yeah. Um, but also it keeps very well because it's soaked in alcohol. Yeah. It literally is like Have a sponge. Yeah. Um, so it's a relatively useful one yeah. for a restaurant. Um, although I don't think technically it would have been a restaurant dish originally. No. Well, in my mind, it's not. It, it may well have been back in the 17, 1800s, but yeah. now it feels like, yeah, you see it on restaurant menus very, a lot. Yeah, yeah especially like little versions. Yeah. 
Love it. And the next one is something that I've just learned about, Ed. Uh, Le Goutte. Le Goutte, yeah. yeah. It's something I learned about as a kid. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the exact translation is, to be honest, but it basically is afternoon snack. Right. Um, and it traditionally was something that mainly kids would have. Yeah. And it would be a sweet snack after school, before dinner. And it's something small, something uh, little. It's just a little sweet bite, basically. Yeah. And um, when I was a kid and I, I did a French exchange in Nantes, or just outside Nantes, um, the family there, their goûter was quite traditional. But yeah. to me as a kid, it was really strange <laughs> because they had this tin um, in the kitchen. And in the tin was... Um, was there two tins? There might have even been two tins. But there was stale bread like little ends of baguettes or little, little pieces of stale bread okay. and off cuts of chocolate and basically you would have a piece of stale bread with chocolate on it and it's just a little bite it was just a really small thing and that was your sweet snack. i found it very strange as a child but that is super traditional so super it's not, common it's not like a thing like a like a croissant or whatever it's, it's not a product just, it's, it's a concept it's yeah. a concept but just... there are things that fit into the guter yeah so a madeleine would be a good air. Or um, my favorite is the chouquette, which is the choux pastry just with pearl sugar on it. So it's just an ah. empty shoe bun, really small, and you buy a little bag of them, yeah. and they're covered in little pearl sugars, and they're delicious. Is it, to, is it just to keep you quiet when you got yeah, back from Yeah, I guess. School? It's kind of that little just like bridge that kids might need, and yeah. some schools give it to kids. Um, but generally, it was something you have after school, kind of before dinner. And it wasn't something that adults did, but it yeah. has become something that people generally will have like this late afternoon like snack. Like a little afternoon snack. Yeah, just like a little a sort sweet of thing. opposite to 11 snacks yeah, totally. that we have in the morning, exactly. but yeah. in the afternoon. Just like, I'm bored, we, a little like sweet snack. <laughs> the 3 p.m. like Mars bar run or exactly. something. <laughs> a little bit more sophisticated yeah. than that maybe, but although maybe not with stale bread and chocolate. Uh, I like a tonics caramel wafer at oh, three yeah. o'clock. Tonics. <laughs> For sure, definitely. From our little cafe downstairs. Yep. Um, and then something which, which you know, we're, we're talking about at Olive right now because we're on Christmas issues, designing and writing <laughs> recipes for, but, um, you know, it is still summer, uh, the Bush de Noel. Um, you, you wrote us a really mm -hmm. beautiful one uh, a year ago, a couple of years ago, which was a gingerbread Bush de Noel with Biscoff cookie butter filling. So yeah. Sounds like you and lemon cream. <laughs> <laughs> it was a really nice one because it was a ginger sponge cake. Mm. Um, and then what we did was um, when the cake is unrolled, we brushed that with melted Biscoff. Mm. So it's a very, very thin layer of Biscoff because it's very rich. And then on top of that, we um, spread a layer of lemon-infused cream and then mm. rolled it all up. And the lemon goes really well with the Biscoff, which goes really well with the ginger. It was kind of all, was quite a nice alternative. And um, But the reason I wanted to talk about Bouche de Noël is not particularly about the recipe mm. or technique. It was more a tradition. Yeah. So I, for some reason, I like cities at Christmas. I love New York at Christmas. Yeah, I love London too. at Christmas. I love Paris at Christmas. And it's because, well, not the only reason, but one of the reasons <laughs> is... Every pastry shop in Paris comes up with their own a take on the Bouche de Noël. Oh, really? And they can be so elaborate, so over the top, so expensive. <laughs> um, but it becomes this like big thing, like the newspapers report and all the versions this year. 
Um, the magazines do like taste tests of them months in advance, and it's this really wow, big really? deal because they're like the Christmas cake. Yeah. Um, and so it's always fascinating to see, especially for decoration. Like I'm not the biggest person on wanting elaborately decorated no. cakes or anything, but there is something really fun about a French modern bouche noël because they go all out. <laughs> they can be crazy from like giant baubles to these Christmas tree shaped, like whatever you can imagine, yeah. someone has probably turned it into a Bouche de Noël. And it isn't even necessarily traditional. There might not even be a roll cake in it. No. But it's, you know, the cake for them that they've done at Christmas. But it's But will it be amazing. in the shape of what we would... No, not know. necessarily. They're often, I've seen one where it was shaped like a block of wood and you could see all the wood grain on the outside. And then there was a, um, a saw coming out of it and the saw was edible <laughs> Um, they're often very chocolate heavy because they use a lot of decoration yeah. and chocolate is one of the easiest things well not the easiest thing but one of the things that they use for decoration but they can be I'm gonna will, can... Will, pe- will people go in and actually buy them yeah, to take definitely. away and how much would you be paying for something oh, like that whatever you can imagine I've seen ones that are like a hundred euros for a Bouche de Noël they sell like different um, size versions some sell like a full size version some will sell like a slight smaller one so there's one I've just found that is in the shape of a red leather shoe uh, like an actual (laughs) shoe not shoe pastry that's just a fancy cake that's not a Bouche de (laughs) Noël so that's like a Bouche de Noël I'm just showing Janine the cake now like that's fully edible it's literally a shoe it looks like a leather shoe a red patent leather shoe but the name is Yule Log (laughs) I mean, that one is. So, some of them are more simple and kind of in that's a Bouche Noël. So, that's not a roll cake. It's more of an entremet in this kind of tubular shape. It's like a layered dessert. Taking the concept and running running with it. Like this one's shaped like Santa Claus. Like they're so elaborate. I've seen ones that are like a sled. You know, it's (laughs) whatever you, literally whatever you can imagine, people have turned them into. Like this one looks like a cocoa bean, like a cocoa pod. But it's dessert. It's it's a cake. Yeah, and I think it's Crazy. just so like the, it's it's like the one time a year where the pastry chefs have said, "Do whatever you just want, go mad. just go crazy with yeah. it." And it's it's just so impressive because the skill level needed to make these things is high. Yeah, um, and just seeing them in the windows and kind of walking from shop to shop and seeing the different ones is really cool. Definitely something if you are there at and you know the, the Christmas markets. If you were doing. If you were staying in Paris for Christmas, yeah, you get the chance out. to go and find the one you want to buy for your yeah. Christmas meal. Yeah, um, but they are very, you know, special but expensive. Um, and finally, you were going to tell us some Milfoy facts. <laughs> so the thing that I was going to say about Milfoy is Milfoy translates to uh, a thousand leaves, yeah. but Milfoy doesn't have a thousand layers. No. It has. I'm going to forget the exact number. I want to say it's seven hundred. 730 something um but it's one of those things that i just think is a really it's become something that people think of as fact like it must have puff pastry must have a thousand layers <laughs> but in fact if you had puff pastry with a thousand layers it wouldn't eat very well because it would be too thick it would, everything would be the, the layers would probably end up being too stuck together it wouldn't have that flakiness um, I'm but surprised it, you know that it's got 736 I, I'm, I'm or whatever it is. I'm going to have to check now because I can't remember exactly how many layers it has now, even though it's. I think it's basically 
called Milfoy because it sounds better than yeah, you know I mean, seven hundred and thirty you know, layers. Artistic license, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Really. So and, and you're you're almost close enough. I mean, you're only like you're, you know, 170 you're not, not that far off. So the thing I like about Milfoy is actually the filling. Yeah. So Milfoy is traditionally made with um something called creme diplomat. Mm. And creme diplomat is to my mind probably the best French filling, the French cream. It's pastry cream that's folded together with whipped cream. Yeah. And it tends to, on, on its most basic classic form, it's a very vanilla-rich custard. And to me, because it's pastry cream plus whipped cream, yeah. it tastes like ice cream, but not frozen. Oh. It has that very creamy, vanilla-y, it's just so luscious yeah. that it just makes the most delicious filling. So for people that don't know, pastry cream is made how? So pastry cream is like a custard. Yeah. So it's um, milk, sometimes cream as well, um, sugar, vanilla, um, cornstarch as the thickener yeah. traditionally, and eggs. eggs. So traditionally it would be egg yolks, but you can um, make it with either a mix of eggs and egg yolks or... Um, whole eggs, but traditionally it would be yeah. yolk heavy. It, but it's a really thick custard, isn't it? Like, yeah, when you make it, it basically has to go so thick it's almost like paste-like, almost like wallpaper paste, yeah. because what you're doing is you're thickening it with thickening it with cornstarch. Yeah. And then when it goes into the fridge, it will set almost like a jelly, but then you beat it to loosen and then it has stability. Yeah. So it's almost like as if you were using gelatin. Yeah. But instead of gelatin, you're using yeah. um, cornstarch. Um, and this one, you basically, you beat it to loosen so it's um, fluid and then you fold through whipped cream. And so you get a whipped cream that has more body more richness mm. um and has this kind of like custard flavor yeah. and it's just so good it's like my favorite thing like if you want to make it the best um like cream donut creme diplomat is what you put in it it's just delicious Gorgeous. i can eat it by the spoon <laughs> with no problem at all Thanks for that. I had some great stuff there. Thank you Tell for listening to the Olive Podcast. Coming out for recipes month. and more so information, head to olivemagazine.com. And, and don't forget um, to subscribe on iTunes, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. About, well, it's, you know, what it says in the tin, really. It's small batch baking. Um, for the last few years, the thing I've been working on with my books is trying to eliminate what I call barriers to entry. So mm. with my One Tin Bake series, it was all about limiting the amount of equipment needed because baking can be very equipment heavy, which can mean it's expensive, which can mean it puts people off. Yeah. And the idea was that you only need one tin to make every recipe in the book. And with this book, Small Batch Bakes, it's about making the recipe size more approachable for people who don't need 30 cookies, that don't need cakes that serve 15 people. So... The recipes in the book serve either six, four, two, or one people. So they're not for every recipe. It's kind of a mix of, of amounts. So there are um, loads of desserts for two. So like think of like date night desserts. Yeah, you might if you're making a you know dessert for date night. You don't need seven. You need two. Yeah. So there's loads of uh, desserts <laughs> for two. There's um, pizza night. So if it's just you and your partner, or um, just you. You can make pizza dough that serves two, but I also show you how to freeze one so you can save one for a later time. There's an emergency cookie, which is just a single (laughs) cookie that you can make without any egg. It can actually be veganized really easily and you can make it and have it out of the oven in about 25 minutes. Yeah. Um, But it's all about kind of baking more the way we actually would do 
frequently. Yeah. So it's not special occasion baking. It's baking for a weekend dessert. It's baking for the family. It's baking for brunch. It's, you know, it's how we would want to do it and not have leftovers, not right. be having to buy huge amounts of ingredients that yeah. we don't really need. Um, it's about kind of, yeah, baking for us on a regular basis. So. Sounds really useful, exactly what we need so. at the minute. Yes. Um, thank you for that. And when, when is it out again? So August 25th. Yeah. And if people want to keep in touch with what you're doing, you're still at The, the Boy Who Bakes Biggs. on literally everything. Everything. Yes. You've got that name. Well I'm on done. TikTok. Come join me on TikTok. <laughs> I'm cool with kids. <laughs> Brilliant. I don't dance, don't worry. <laughs> Thanks again for coming to chat to us today. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Olive Podcast. For recipes and more information, head to olivemagazine.com. And don't forget to subscribe at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.